Black Beauty, the autobiography of a horse, by Anna Sewell, English Quaker, 1820 to 1878. Part two. Twenty-two, Earl's Hall. The next morning after breakfast, Joe put Merrylegs into the mistress's low chaise to take him to the vicarage. He came first and said goodbye to us, and Merrylegs neighed to us from the yard. Then John put the saddle on Ginger, and the leading rein on me, and rode us across the country about fifteen miles to Earl's Hall Park, where the Earl of Westland lived. There was a very fine house, and a great deal of stabling. We went into the yard through a stone gateway, and John asked for Mr. York. It was some time before he came. He was a fine-looking middle-aged man, and his voice said at once that he expected to be obeyed. He was very friendly and polite to John, and after giving us a slight look, he called a groom to take us to our boxes, and invited John to take some refreshment. We were taken to a light, airy stable, and placed in boxes adjoining each other, where we were rubbed down and fed. In about half an hour, John and Mr. York, who was to be our new coachman, came in to see us. "'No, Mr. Manley,' he said after carefully looking at us both. "'I can see no fault in these horses, but we all know that horses have their peculiarities as well as men, and that sometimes they need different treatment. I should like to know if there is anything particular in either of these that you would like to mention.' "'Well,' said John, "'I don't believe there is a better pair of horses in the country.' and right grieved I am to part with them, but they are not alike. The black one is the most perfect temper I ever knew. I suppose he has never known a hard word or a blow since he was foaled, and all his pleasure seems to be to do what you wish. But the chestnut, I fancy, must have had bad treatment. We heard as much from the dealer. She came to us snappish and suspicious, but when she found what sort of place ours was, it all went off by degrees. For three years I have never seen the smallest sign of temper, and if she is well treated there is not a better, more willing animal than she is. But she is naturally a more irritable constitution than the black horse. Flies tease her more, anything wrong in the harness frets her more, and if she were ill-used or unfairly treated, she would not be unlikely to give tit for tat. You know that many high-mettled horses will do so. Of course, said York. I quite understand. But you know, it is not easy in stables like these to have all the grooms just what they should be. I do my best, and there I must leave it. I'll remember what you have said about the mare. They were going out of the stable when John stopped and said, I had better mention that we have never used the check rein with either of them. The black horse never had one on, and the dealer said it was the gag bit that spoiled the other's temper. Well, said York, if they come here, they must wear the check rein. I prefer a loose rein myself, and his lordship is always very reasonable about horses. But my lady, that's another thing. She will have style, and if her carriage horses are not reined up tight, she wouldn't look at them. I always stand out against the gag bit, and shall do so, but it must be tight up when my lady rides. I am sorry for it. Very sorry, said John. But I must go now, or I shall lose the train. He came round to each of us to pat and speak to us for the last time. His voice sounded very sad. I held my face close to him. That was all I could do to say goodbye. And then he was gone. 
and I have never seen him since. The next day, Lord Westland came to look at us. He seemed pleased with our appearance. I have great confidence in these horses, he said, from the character my friend Mr. Gordon has given me of them. Of course, they are not a match in colour, but my idea is that they will do very well for the carriage while we are in the country. Before we go to London, I must try to match Baron. The black horse, I believe, is perfect for riding. York then told him what John had said about us. Well, said he, you must keep an eye to the mare and put the check rein easy. I dare say they will do very well with a little humouring at first. I'll mention it to your lady. In the afternoon, we were harnessed and put in the carriage, and as the stable clock struck three, we were led round to the front of the house. It was all very grand, and three or four times as large as the old house at Birtwick, but not half so pleasant, if a horse may have an opinion. Two footmen were standing ready, dressed in drab livery, with scarlet breeches and white stockings. Presently, we heard the rustling sound of silk as my lady came down the flight of stone steps. She stepped round to look at us. She was a tall, proud-looking woman and did not seem pleased about something, but she said nothing and got into the carriage. This was the first time of wearing a check rein, and I must say, though it certainly was a nuisance not to be able to get my head down now and then, it did not pull my head higher than I was accustomed to carry it. I felt anxious about Ginger, but she seemed to be quiet and content. The next day at three o'clock, we were again at the door, and the footman as before. We heard the silk dress rustle, and the lady came down the steps, and in an imperious voice she said, "'York, you must put those horses' heads higher. They are not fit to be seen.' York got down and said very respectfully, "'I beg your pardon, my lady, but these horses have not been reined up for three years, and my lord said it would be safer to bring them to it by degrees. But if your ladyship pleases, I can take them up a little more.' Do so, she said. York came round to our heads and shortened the rein himself. One hole, I think. Every little makes a difference, be it for better or worse. And that day we had a steep hill to go up. Then I began to understand what I had heard of. Of course, I wanted to put my head forward and take the carriage up with a will as we had been used to do. But no, I had to pull with my head up now. And that took all the spirit out of me, and the strain came on my back and legs. When we came in, Ginger said, Now you see what it is like. But this is not bad, and if it does not get much worse than this, I shall say nothing about it, for we are very well treated here. But if they strain me up tight, why let them look out. I can't bear it, and I won't. Day by day, hole by hole, our bearing reins were shortened, and instead of looking forward with pleasure to having my harness put on as I used to do, I began to dread it. Ginger, too, seemed restless, though she said very little. At last, I thought the worst was over. For several days, there was no more shortening, and I determined to make the best of it and do my duty, though it was now a constant harass instead of a pleasure. But the worst was not come. 23. A Strike for Liberty One day, my lady came down later than usual, and the silk rustled more than ever. "'Drive to the Duchess's,' she said. 
and then after a pause, Are you never going to get those horses' heads up, York? Raise them at once, and let us have no more of this humouring and nonsense. York came to me first, while the groom stood at Ginger's head. He drew my head back and fixed the rein so tight that it was almost intolerable. Then he went to Ginger, who was impatiently jerking her head up and down against the bit, as was her way now. She had a good idea of what was coming, and the moment York took the rein off the terret in order to shorten it, she took her opportunity and reared up so suddenly that York had his nose roughly hit and his hat knocked off. The groom was nearly thrown off his legs. At once they both flew to her head, but she was a match for them, and went on plunging, rearing and kicking in a most desperate manner. At last, she kicked right over the carriage pole and fell down after giving me a severe blow on my near quarter. There is no knowing what further mischief she might have done had not York promptly sat himself down flat on her head to prevent her struggling, at the same time calling out, Unbuckle the black horse, run for the winch, and unscrew the carriage pole. Cut the trace here, somebody, if you can't unhitch it. One of the footmen ran for the winch, and another brought a knife from the house. The groom soon set me free from Ginger in the carriage and led me to my box. He turned me in as I was and ran back to York. I was much excited by what had happened, and if I had ever been used to kick or rear, I am sure I should have done it then. But I never had. And there I stood, angry, sore in my leg, my head still strained up to the terret on the saddle and no power to get it down. I was very miserable and felt much inclined to kick the first person who came near me. Before long, however, Ginger was led in by two grooms, a good deal knocked about and bruised. York came with her and gave his orders, and then came to look at me. In a moment, he let down my head. Confound these check reins, he said to himself. I thought we should have had some mischief soon. Master will be sorely vexed. But there, if a woman's husband can't rule her, of course a servant can't. So I wash my hands of it, and if she can't get to the Duchess's garden party, I can't help it. York did not say this before the men. He always spoke respectfully when they were by. Now he felt me all over, and soon found the place above my hawk where I had been kicked. It was swelled and painful. He ordered it to be sponged with hot water, and then some lotion was put on. Lord Westland was much put out when he learned what had happened. He blamed York for giving way to his mistress, to which he replied that in future he would much prefer to receive his orders only from his lordship. But I think nothing came of it, for things went on the same as before. I thought York might have stood up better for his horses, but perhaps I am no judge. Ginger was never put into the carriage again, but when she was well of her bruises, one of the Lord Westland's younger sons said he should like to have her. He was sure she would make a good hunter. As for me, I was obliged still to go in the carriage, and had a fresh partner called Max. He had always been used to the tight rein. I asked him how it was he bore it. Well, he said, I bear it because I must, but it is shortening my life, and it will shorten yours too if you have to stick to it. Do you think, I said, that our masters know how bad it is for us? I can't say, he replied, but the dealers and the horse doctors know it very well. I was at a dealer's once who was training me and another horse to go as a pair. He was getting our heads up, as he said, a little higher and a little higher every day. A gentleman who was there asked him why he did so. Because, said he, people won't buy them unless we do. The London people always want their horses to carry their heads high and to step high. 
Of course it is very bad for the horses, but then it is good for trade. The horses soon wear up, or get diseased, and they come for another pair. That, said Max, is what he said in my hearing, and you can judge for yourself. What I suffered with that rain for four long months in my lady's carriage, it would be hard to describe. But I am quite sure that had it lasted much longer, either my health or my temper would have given way. Before that, I never knew what it was to foam at the mouth. But now the action of the sharp bit on my tongue and jaw, and the constrained position of my head and throat, always caused me to froth at the mouth, more or less. Some people think it very fine to see this, and say, what fine spirited creatures. But it is just as unnatural for horses as for men to foam at the mouth. It is a sure sign of some discomfort and should be attended to. Besides this, there was a pressure on my windpipe, which often made my breathing very uncomfortable. When I returned from my work, my neck and chest were strained and painful, my mouth and tongue tender, and I felt worn and depressed. In my old home, I always knew that John and my master were my friends. But here, although in many ways I was well-treated, I had no friend. York might have known, and very likely did know, how that rain harassed me. But I suppose he took it as a matter of course that it could not be helped. At any rate, nothing was done to relieve me. 24. The Lady Anne, or a Runaway Horse Early in the spring, Lord Westland and part of his family went up to London and took York with them. I and Ginger and some other horses were left at home for use, and the head groom was left in charge. The Lady Harriet, who remained at the hall, was a great invalid and never went out in the carriage, and the Lady Anne preferred riding on horseback with her brother or cousins. She was a perfect horsewoman, and as gay and gentle as she was beautiful. She chose me for her horse, and named me Black Auster. I enjoyed these rides very much in the clear, cold air, sometimes with Ginger, sometimes with Lizzie. This Lizzie was a bright bay mare, almost thoroughbred, and a great favorite with the gentlemen, on account of her fine action and lively spirit. But Ginger, who knew more of her than I did, told me she was rather nervous. There was a gentleman of the name of Blantyre staying at the hall. He always rode Lizzie and praised her so much that one day Lady Anne ordered the side saddle to be put on her and the other saddle on me. When we came to the door, the gentleman seemed very uneasy. How is this? He said. Are you tired of your good black oyster? Oh, no, not at all, she replied. But I am amiable enough to let you ride him for once and I will try your charming Lizzie. You must confess that in size and appearance she is far more like a lady's horse than my own favourite. Do let me advise you not to mount her, he said. She is a charming creature, but she is too nervous for a lady. I assure you she is not perfectly safe. Let me beg you to have the saddles changed. My dear cousin, said Lady Anne, laughing, pray do not trouble your good careful head about me. I have been a horsewoman ever since I was a baby, and I have followed the hounds a great many times. Though I know you do not approve of ladies' hunting, but still that is the fact, and I intend to try this Lizzie that you gentlemen are all so fond of. So please, help me to mount like a good friend as you are. There was no more to be said, 
He placed her carefully on the saddle, looked to the bit and curb, gave the reins gently into her hand, and then mounted me. Just as we were moving off, a footman came out with a slip of paper and a message from the Lady Harriet. Would they ask this question for her at Dr. Ashley's and bring the answer? The village was about a mile off, and the doctor's house was the last in it. We went along gaily enough till we came to his gate. There was a short drive up to the house between tall evergreens. Blantyre alighted at the gate and was going to open it for Lady Anne, but she said, I will wait for you here and you can hang Oster's rein on the gate. He looked at her doubtfully. It will not be five minutes, he said. Oh, do not hurry yourself. Lizzie and I shall not run away from you. He hung my rein on one of the iron spikes and was soon hidden among the trees. Lizzie was standing quietly by the side of the road a few paces off with her back to me. My young mistress was sitting easily with a loose rein, humming a little song. I listened to my rider's footsteps till they reached the house and heard him knock at the door. There was a meadow on the opposite side of the road, the gate of which stood open. Just then, some cart horses and several young colts came trotting out in a very disorderly manner, while a boy behind was cracking a great whip. The colts were wild and frolicsome, and one of them bolted across the road and blundered up against Lizzie's hind legs, and whether it was the stupid colt or the loud cracking of the whip, were both together, I cannot say, but she gave a violent kick and dashed off into a headlong gallop. It was so sudden that Lady Anne was nearly unseated, but she soon recovered herself. I gave a loud, shrill neigh for help. Again and again I neighed, pawing the ground impatiently and tossing my head to get the rein loose. I had not long to wait. Blantyre came running to the gate. He looked anxiously about, and just caught sight of the flying figure, now far away on the road. In an instant, he sprang to the saddle. I needed no whip, no spur, for I was as eager as my rider. He saw it, and giving me a free rein, and leaning a little forward, we dashed after them. For about a mile and a half, the road ran straight, and then bent to the right, after which it divided into two roads. Long before we came to the bend, she was out of sight. Which way had she turned? A woman was standing at her garden gate, shading her eyes with her hand and looking eagerly up to the road. Scarcely drawing the rein, Blantyre shouted, "'Which way?' "'To the right!' cried the woman, pointing with her hand, and away we went up the right-hand road. Then for a moment we caught sight of her. Another bend and she was hidden again. Several times we caught glimpses and then lost them. We scarcely seemed to gain ground upon them at all. An old roadmender was standing near a heap of stones, his shovel dropped and his hands raised. As we came near, he made a sign to speak. Blantyre drew the rein a little. To the common, to the common, sir. She has turned off there. I knew this common very well. It was for the most part very uneven ground, covered with heather and dark green furze bushes, with here and there a scrubby old thorn tree. There were also open spaces of fine short grass, with anthills and mole turns everywhere. The worst place I ever knew for a headlong gallop. We had hardly turned on the common when we caught sight again of the green habit flying on before us. My lady's hat was gone, and her long brown hair was streaming behind her. Her head and body were thrown back, as if she were pulling with all her remaining strength, and as if that strength were nearly exhausted. It was clear that the roughness of the ground had very much lessened Lizzie's speed, 
and there seemed a chance that we might overtake her. While we were on the high road, Blantyre had given me my head, but now, with a light hand and a practiced eye, he guided me over the ground in such a masterly manner that my pace was scarcely slackened, and we were decidedly gaining on them. About halfway across the heath, there had been a wide dike recently cut, and the earth from the cutting was cast up roughly on the other side. Surely this would stop them. But no. With scarcely a pause, Lizzie took the leap, stumbled among the rough clods, and fell. Blantyre groaned. Now, Auster, do your best. He gave me a steady rein. I gathered myself well together and with one determined leap, cleared both dike and bank. Motionless among the heather, with her face to the earth, lay my poor young mistress. Blantyre kneeled down and called her name. There was no sound. Gently, he turned her face upward. It was ghastly white, and the eyes were closed. Annie, dear Annie, do speak. But there was no answer. He unbuttoned her habit, loosened her collar, felt her hands and wrist, then started up and looked wildly around him for help. At no great distance there were two men cutting turf, who, seeing Lizzie running wild without a rider, had left their work to catch her. Blantyre's hello soon brought them to the spot. The foremost man seemed much troubled at the sight, and asked what he could do. "'Can you ride?' "'Well, sir, I bain't much of a horseman, but I'd risk my neck for the Lady Anne. She was uncommon good to my wife in the winter.' "'Then mount this horse, my friend. Your neck will be quite safe.' and ride to the doctor's and ask him to come instantly. Then, on to the hall, tell them all that you know, and bid them send me the carriage with Lady Anne's maid and help. I shall stay here. All right, sir, I'll do my best, and I pray God the dear young lady may open her eyes soon. Then, seeing the other man, he called out, Here, Joe! Run for some water, and tell my missus to come as quick as she can to the Lady Anne. He then somehow scrambled into the saddle, and with a, Key up! and a clap on my sides with both his legs, he started on his journey, making a little circuit to avoid the dike. He had no whip which seemed to trouble him, but my pace soon cured that difficulty, and he found the best thing he could do was to stick to the saddle and hold me in, which he did manfully. I shook him as little as I could help, but once or twice on the rough ground he called out, Steady! Whoa! Steady! On the high road we were all right, and at the doctor's in the hall... He did his errand like a good man and true. They asked him in to take a drop of something. No, no, he said. I'll be back to him again by a shortcut through the fields and be there for the carriage. There was a great deal of hurry and excitement after the news became known. It was just turned into my box. The saddle and bridle were taken off and a cloth thrown over me. Ginger was saddled and sent off in great haste for Lord George, and I soon heard the carriage roll out of the yard. It seemed a long time before Ginger came back, and before we were left alone. And then, she told me all that she had seen. "'I can't tell much,' she said. "'We went a gallop nearly all the way, and got there just as the doctor rode up. There was a woman sitting on the ground with the lady's head in her lap. The doctor poured something into her mouth, but all that I heard was, "'She is not dead.' Then I was led off by a man to a little distance— after a while, she was taken to the carriage, and we came home together. I heard my master say to a gentleman who stopped him to inquire that he hoped no bones were broken, but that she had not spoken yet. When Lord George took Ginger for hunting, York shook his head, 
He said it ought to be a steady hand to train a horse for the first season, and not a random rider like Lord George. Ginger used to like it very much, but sometimes when she came back, I could see that she had been very much strained, and now and then she gave a short cough. She had too much spirit to complain, but I could not help feeling anxious about her. Two days after the accident, Blantyre paid me a visit. He patted me and praised me very much. He told Lord George that he was sure the horse knew of Vanny's danger as well as he did. I could not have held him in if I would, said he. She ought never to ride any other horse. I found by their conversation that my young mistress was now out of danger and would soon be able to ride again. This was good news to me, and I looked forward to a happy life. 25. Reuben Smith Now I must say a little about Reuben Smith, who was left in charge of the stables when York went to London. No one more thoroughly understood his business than he did, and when he was all right, there could not be a more faithful or valuable man. He was gentle and very clever in his management of horses, and could doctor them almost as well as a farrier, for he had lived two years with a veterinary surgeon. He was a first-rate driver. He could take a four-in-hand or a tandem as easily as a pair. He was a handsome man, a good scholar, and had very pleasant manners. I believe everybody liked him. Certainly the horses did. The only wonder was that he should be in an under-situation and not in the place of a head coachman like York. But he had one great fault, and that was the love of drink. He was not like some men, always at it, He used to keep steady for weeks or months together, and then he would break out and have a bout of it, as York called it, and be a disgrace to himself, a terror to his wife, and a nuisance to all that had to do with him. He was, however, so useful that two or three times York had hushed the matter up and kept it from the Earl's knowledge. But one night, when Reuben had to drive a party home from a ball, he was so drunk that he could not hold the reins and a gentleman of the party had to mount the box and drive the ladies home. Of course, this could not be hidden, and Reuben was at once dismissed. His poor wife and little children had to turn out of the pretty cottage by the park gate and go where they could. Old Max told me all this, for it happened a good while ago, but shortly before Ginger and I came, Smith had been taken back again. York had interceded for him with the Earl, who is very kind-hearted, and the man had promised faithfully that he would never taste another drop as long as he lived there. He had kept his promise so well that York thought he might be safely trusted to fill his place while he was away, and he was so clever and honest that no one else seemed so well fitted for it. It was now early in April, and the family was expected home sometime in May. The light broom was to be fresh done up, and as Colonel Blantyre was obliged to return to his regiment, it was arranged that Smith should drive him to the town in it and ride back. For this purpose, he took the saddle with him, and I was chosen for the journey. At the station, the colonel put some money into Smith's hand and bid him goodbye, saying, "'Take care of your young mistress, Reuben, and don't let Black Orster be hacked about by any random young prig that wants to ride him. Keep him for the lady.' We left the carriage at the maker's, and Smith rode me to the White Lion and ordered the hostler to feed me well and have me ready for him at four o'clock. A nail in one of my front shoes had started as I came along, but the hostler did not notice it till just about four o'clock. 
Smith did not come into the yard till five, and then he said he should not leave till six, as he had met with some old friends. The man then told him of the nail, and asked if he should have the shoe looked to. Now, said Smith, that will be all right till we get home. He spoke in a very loud, offhand way, and I thought it very unlike him not to see about the shoe, as he was generally wonderfully particular about loose nails in our shoes. He did not come at six, nor seven, nor eight, and it was nearly nine o'clock before he called for me, and then it was with a loud, rough voice. He seemed to be in a very bad temper, and abused the hostler, though I could not tell what for. The landlord stood at the door and said, "'Have a care, Mr. Smith!' But he answered angrily with an oath, and almost before he was out of the town he began to gallop, frequently giving me a sharp cut with his whip, though I was going at full speed. The moon had not yet risen, and it was very dark. The roads were stony, having been recently mended. Going over them at this pace, my shoe became looser, and as we neared the turnpike gate, it came off. If Smith had been in his right senses, he would have been sensible of something wrong in my pace, but he was too drunk to notice. Beyond the turnpike was a long piece of road, upon which fresh stones had just been laid, large, sharp stones, over which no horse could be driven quickly without risk of danger. Over this road, with one shoe gone, I was forced to gallop at my utmost speed. My rider, meanwhile cutting into me with his whip, and with wild curses urging me to go still faster. Of course, my shoeless foot suffered dreadfully. The hoof was broken and split down to the very quick, and the inside was terribly cut by the sharpness of the stones. This could not go on. No horse could keep his footing under such circumstances. The pain was too great. I stumbled and fell with violence on both my knees. Smith was flung off by my fall, and owing to the speed I was going at, he must have fallen with great force. I soon recovered my feet and limped to the side of the road where it was free from stones. The moon had just risen above the hedge, and by its light I could see Smith lying a few yards beyond me. He did not rise. He made one slight effort to do so, and then there was a heavy groan. I could have groaned too, for I was suffering intense pain both from my foot and knees, but horses are used to bear their pain in silence. I uttered no sound, but I stood there and listened. One more heavy groan from Smith, but though he now lay in the full moonlight, I could see no motion. I could do nothing for him nor myself, but oh, how I listened for the sound of horse or wheels or footsteps. The road was not much frequented, and at this time of the night we might stay for hours before help came to us. I stood watching and listening. It was a calm, sweet April night. There were no sounds but a few low notes of a nightingale, and nothing moved but the white clouds near the moon and a brown owl that flitted over the hedge. It made me think of the summer nights long ago, when I used to lie beside my mother in the green, pleasant meadow at Farmer Gray's. 26. How it ended. 
It must have been nearly midnight when I heard at a great distance the sound of a horse's feet. Sometimes the sound died away. Then it grew clearer again and nearer. The road to Earl's Hall led through woods that belonged to the Earl. The sound came in that direction, and I hoped it might be someone coming in search for us. As the sound came nearer and nearer, I was almost sure I could distinguish Ginger's step. A little nearer still, and I could tell she was in the dog cart. I neighed loudly, and was overjoyed to hear an answering neigh from Ginger and men's voices. They came slowly over the stones, and stopped at the dark figure that lay upon the ground. One of the men jumped out and swooped down over it. "'It is Reuben,' he said, "'and he does not stir.' The other man followed and bent over him. "'He's dead,' he said. "'Feel how cold his hands are.' They raised him up, but there was no life, and his hair was soaked with blood. They laid him down again and came and looked at me. They soon saw my cut knees.' Why, the horse has been down and thrown him. Who would have thought the black horse would have done that? Nobody thought he could fall. Reuben must have been lying here for hours. Odd, too, that the horse has not moved from the place. Robert then attempted to lead me forward. I made a step, but almost fell again. Hello? He's bad in his foot as well as his knees. Look here. His hoof is cut all to pieces. He might well come down, poor fellow. I'll tell you what, Ned. I'm afraid it hasn't been all right with Reuben. Just think of his riding a horse over these stones without a shoe. Why, if he had been in his right senses, he would have just as soon have tried to ride him over the moon. I'm afraid it has been the old thing over again. Poor Susan. She looked awfully pale when she came to my house to ask if he had not come home. She made believe she was not a bit anxious and talked of a lot of things that might have kept him. But for all that... She begged me to go and meet him. But what must we do? There's the horse to get home as well as the body, and that will be no easy matter. Then followed a conversation between them, till it was agreed that Robert, as the groom, should lead me, and that Ned must take the body. It was a hard job to get it into the dog cart, for there was no one to hold Ginger, but she knew as well as I did what was going on, and stood as still as a stone. I noticed that, because if she had a fault, it was that she was impatient in standing. Ned started off very slowly with his sad load, and Robert came and looked at my foot again. Then he took his handkerchief and bound it closely round, and so he led me home. I shall never forget that night walk. It was more than three miles. Robert led me on very slowly, and I limped and hobbled on as well as I could with great pain. I am sure he was sorry for me, for he often patted and encouraged me, talking to me in a pleasant voice. At last I reached my own box and had some corn, and after Robert had wrapped up my knees in wet cloths, he tied up my foot in a bran poultice to draw out the heat and cleanse it before the horse doctor saw it in the morning and I managed to get myself down on the straw and slept in spite of the pain. The next day after the farrier had examined my wounds, he said he hoped the joint was not injured, and if so, I should not be spoiled for work, but I should never lose the blemish. I believe they did the best to make a good cure, but it was a long and painful one. 
proud flesh, as they called it, came up in my knees and was burned out with caustic. And when at last it was healed, they put a blistering fluid over the front of both knees to bring all the hair off. They had some reason for this, and I suppose it was all right. As Smith's death had been so sudden, and no one was there to see it, there was an inquest held. The landlord and hostler at the White Lion, with several other people, gave evidence that he was intoxicated when he started from the inn. The keeper of the toll gate said he rode at a hard gallop through the gate, and my shoe was picked up among the stones, so that the case was quite plain to them, and I was cleared of all blame. Everybody pitied Susan. She was nearly out of her mind. She kept saying over and over again, Oh, he was so good. So good. It was all that cursed drink. Why will they sell that cursed drink? Oh, Reuben. Reuben. So she went on till after he was buried. And then, as she had no home or relations... She, with her six little children, was obliged once more to leave the pleasant home by the tall oak trees and go into that great, gloomy union house. Thank you, again, for continuing to join us for each episode of Storylight. And if you're new to us, we send you the warmest welcome. Whether you're a new listener or an old friend, we at Storylight would be very grateful if you would subscribe to the podcast and give it a nice rating and review on whatever platform you listen. More than that, though... We would love for more people to be able to enjoy these stories. So please, tell a friend about us. You are my joy. You are my happy thoughts. We'll see you next time.